This week on The Balanced Voice, we have a follow-up discussion to episode 81 with Mira Servino. If you missed that conversation, don't forget to go back and give it a listen. On today's episode, we get to take you back to our Crime Stoppers of Houston gala held earlier this month, in which Mira Servino was our guest speaker. With the support of Mira, we were able to raise $1 million to help keep people across the city of Houston, the state of Texas, and beyond safe. The conversation you will hear momentarily is the moderated conversation held on the night of our gala between Mira Servino and Emmy Award-winning news anchor Mia Gradney. This is the Balanced Voice Podcast. Please help me welcome to the stage Houston's own multi, multiple Emmy Award-winning TV personality, producer, reporter, KHOU, 11 News Evening Anchor, Mia Gradney. As a newsroom leader, <laughs> Mia has made it her mission to find equal footing for the underserved and new ca- newscast. She is known... She is known for creating content hyper-focused on positive, meaningful, and informative coverage, which tells the unsung narratives of women and minority communities. She'll serve as this evening's host for our moderated conversation. Welcome, Mia. Also joining Mia is tonight's special guest. It's such an honor to have her here. She is an Academy Award and Golden Globe winner who most recently starred in the critically acclaimed film Sound of Freedom. Right now you can see her on Dancing with the Stars with partner Gleb Shevchenko. Um, Tuesdays, 8, 7 Central on ABC and Disney Plus. You can tell you can tell. I was coached on how to write just this part and stream on Hulu um, and in the Stars series Shining Veil with Courtney Cox, which begins airing its second season this Friday. Most importantly, she's a longtime global advocate and game-changing agent on the front lines combating trafficking. She's a Harvard grad and a UNODC goodwill ambassador for combating human trafficking. Her work and accomplishments are literally far too long to recite but we ask you to please read her bio in the program for you. Mira's work has changed the landscape for women in film to literally paving the way for justice and protection for women, children, and communities in need all over the globe. Please take a moment, as I said, to read her bio. And for now, please help me in welcoming our special guest, Mira Servino. Mira, good evening. Go ahead. Let's have a seat. All right. Let's get comfortable. Okay. This could be a new show. Mira and Mia, M&M. How about that? <laughs> it's so lovely to have you here in Houston with us. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. At least you get to rest your feet this evening. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm honored to be here. Wonderful. I'm hopeful tonight that people will be able to glean so much from you. You have an amazing story. And in my business of news and in your business of entertainment, stories move people. And I'm hopeful that tonight your story will move all of us here to do more in the realm of advocacy and awareness too. 
Well, thank you. But I want to start off and dial it back a little <laughs> bit, if you don't mind. Part of your story is rooted in Harvard University. Before Hollywood, there was Harvard. Is that where you found your passion to have a voice for others and do this significant worldwide work that you do now? Um, thank you. Uh, actually, I think it started when I was a child and I saw my mother uh, volunteering at the Norman Vincent, uh, Vincent Peale Helpline in New York, which was a suicide prevention hotline. And she would go and volunteer her time and literally talk people off of ledges. And service was very important to her. And that was kind of ingrained in us. And then my father's greatest cultural heroes were the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and um, the, uh, at that point, I think later he became Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So he he had these great cultural and spiritual and ethical leaders who promoted a more peaceful and just world for all. And I think the combination of my mother's strong faith and her ethic of volunteerism and my father's, you know, guiding star being these two men um, really built something in me. Um, and then at Harvard, I ended up, I was a Chinese studies major, but when I lived in Beijing for eight months uh, from 1988 to 89, I started noticing racial conflict between Chinese and African students, and I had always been interested in prejudice or otherism, anything that makes one group of people or one person treat another person like they are less than, like they are a thing or an animal and they are not deserving of the same humanity or empathy. And I ended up writing my thesis on this racial conflict between Chinese and African students. And I ended up getting two Ford Foundation grants to work on it. And I ended up getting the Hoop Pri Hoops Prize on it. And then after college, I worked on a documentary about anti-Semitism in the former Soviet Union. It was right around 1990 when Glasnost and Perestroika were opening up the country, but hate groups found their voice through that. So you had all these Russophilic neo-Nazis who were blaming all the ills of the 20th century on Jewish people and threatening to pogromize them in their homes on a certain date in May. And so I went over there with some other people who were much senior to me, who were journalists trying to do a preemptive media strike. And it was a very fascinating look at kind of free, free speech gone wrong, I guess. Um, but then my acting career kind of took over. So amidst all of that. Yeah, so it took me about <clears throat> till 2004 really to find an outlet again for my wish to be of service, to engage in something that I was very passionately, um, you know, drawn to fight, right? So um, in 2004, um, my husband and I were expecting our first child, and I was offered to spend a night with Amnesty International giving a speech about the disappeared women and girls of Juarez and Chihuahua, Mexico. And I did that, and they, they liked it, and they were like, would you come on board as our stop violence against women spokesperson. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. You know, this is the opportunity I was hoping for. And luckily, my husband was very supportive of that. And I thought bringing a girl child into the world, if I was not committed to helping better that world for her, because women and girls are in every culture, whether it's this one or one. And essential to every culture. Yes. You know, but there is such violence, both physical and sexual, against women everywhere 
that I was like, well, I'm giving, I'm given this opportunity and I'm having a female child. I have to take this opportunity. And one of the first things I learned about under the canopy of violence against women in the world was human trafficking. And this was 2004. And not many people were talking about this at this point. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Slavery is is still extant, like, and, and I was stunned that, you know, basically the legal chattel slavery of the past had basically gone underground and become the illicit modern day booming now over $250 billion a year. It hadn't gone away, it had just evolved. It just, it just changed, and even, and, and you know, of course the prison system is also a part of legalized slavery, but this is the illegal slavery. You know, human trafficking is the illegal labor and sex trafficking of human beings um, for the profit motive. And that was the thing that was so surprising to me because all of my other work on the dehumanization of others, mm -hmm. the, the mistreatment, abuse, persecution, genocide of others, was based on something that was like an innate factor, whether it was their gender, their ethnicity, their nationality, their religion, um, you know. But this was just... A trafficker sees an opportunity to make money off of a person and they seize it and they have no human feeling for that person whatsoever. And it has, they will, they will use anybody. If they can use you or me, they would. Um, but usually it's the poor and underprivileged and, and people who have prior history of abuse. The anyway, vulnerable, that make the most vulnerable. vulnerable. Yes, homeless people, runaway children, uh, LGBTQ plus people, uh, migrant people, people coming from conflict-ridden areas, ethnic minorities in countries where you know they are historically abused, caste systems where whole generations can be born into prostitution. Um, so I was, I, was, I was really stunned, and then I was offered a, a TV miniseries for Lifetime that talked about the topic, and it, it's eponymous, and I can't talk about struck work because of the SAG strike, but it was with Donald Sutherland, and, and it was one of the first mainstream projects about human trafficking. And I learned a lot doing it, but I played an ICE agent, and once I was done, I was like, you know what? Because I was working with this organization, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking in Los Angeles, and we were going to Washington as part of the promotion of the film to help repass the TVPA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, with stronger provisions. And I was like, I need to meet some survivors. I don't want to just be doing this from a sort of outsider's point of view. I, I, I need to talk to survivors about their lived experience. And I met these two women, and they were the first, but not by a long shot the last. I've, I've interviewed so many survivors and overcomers over the years, and they are my heroes. They are the most incredible Absolutely. people in the world. You, you people are... I, I don't want to use an expletive, but you're blanking incredible. I mean, what, you know, that that's the thing, the human spirit that you guys are exemplars of. You've had the worst done to you, and you rise as the best. I mean, it's incredible. And thank you for your example. Um, you had such a knowledge and a background, right, about learning about the downtrodden and people who had been taken advantage of. And I know you said it, the work really started in 2004. It sounds like you knew so much, but yet you knew so little. Was there an education for oh, you there? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a super education, just understanding 
also, I mean, all the various forms that human trafficking takes. I mean, there are so many different kinds of labor trafficking and different forms of sex, sex trafficking. Uh, you know, a commonality is, is that around 70% of the world's victims are women and girls. So it is, you know, more women and girls are affected than men, but there are many men and many boy children as well. Um, the, you know, the, the range of... <laughs> Like camel jockeys can be trafficked. Little boys can be, you know, trafficked as camel jockeys in the Middle East. Um, construction workers uh, in this country, janitorial staffs in schools can be comprised of trafficked labor. Christmas tree farmers, um, you know, OnlyFans pages. A lot of those people are also trafficked. They're also in a relationship of force. Um, it's interesting just how creative those perpetrators can be in taking advantage of those people and trafficking them. Yes. And, um, you know, in each country I sought to educate myself further. So in 2009, I was invited by the United Nations to be their goodwill ambassador in the global fight against trafficking persons by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, which is called UNODC. And that has been my role ever since. And it's been one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life. And I've traveled with them. And also when I've traveled on my own to various regions, I've tried to connect with their local offices on the ground and speak to all the local experts and get educations there in Thailand, England, Spain, Mexico, um, Aruba, every, every, everywhere I go, I try and connect with some NGOs there, with some government officials. And in Spain, I actually interviewed a, a trafficker who was responsible for trafficking thousands of young women and girls from Latin America and Africa into Europe. And uh, he broke it down for me. He was like, in the old days of prostitution, you know, we had to engage in these fictions where we, we made the, the, the girls believe that we were in love with them and that we were working together for a common goal, like uh, rent on a, or a, the, the, you know, the down payment on a house or the note on a car. But now we don't have to do that anyway. We, the mask is off. Now we just take the girls and women and we threaten them and their families and we make them work by force. It's just pure, we just threaten them, and we force them, and we terrify them, and that's what we do. It's disgusting. And then he said, a woman is like this. And he picked up a bottle, and he said, a woman is a mercantile object to be traded and sold. Just like that. And, that, and he said that with these cold, dead eyes. Yeah. And, and the longer I sat there with him, the more I got depressed. And he was an informant for the police. And I was going I, to ask you, yeah, was he was in prison to, when no, you, they, they you were doing feel, this interview? It would have yeah. taken many more weeks to get like a, you know, permission to go to premises. But he was, he was on parole, and he was an informant for the police. And they had a special brigade on human trafficking, and they arranged this meeting for him. And the longer I spoke with him, the more despondent I became. And he had married one of his former victims, and he had three children with her. And eventually he's, you know, I was like, you're, you're not doing enough. He's like, well, if a girl wants to denounce, I help take her to the police office. And I was like, yeah, how many times does that happen? Well, maybe three or four last year. And I was like, you've trafficked thousands of women. And he, he would say this, he would say, look, we have, and this is how debt bondage works the world over on whether it's labor or sex trafficking, right? So he said, it, in, in reality, our cost for each woman is about 1,000 euros, but we tell them that it costs us 30,000 euros. So we go to their family, we make a deal with them, but we also, like, we get information on the loan on their house. We find out where their children go to school. And we send back 
maybe $100 a month to their family to keep the family on the hook. But we also surveil the family. We have people in country watching the home families. And when the girl gets to Europe, we tell her, okay, you owe us 30,000 30, euros. So we're gonna give you half the week. You get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we get the rest of the week. You get to keep your earnings, and then we keep the rest of it, and you have to pay us back eventually. And he said, but the days we give them are the dead days. So they could never, and, and, and they said, we also charge them for every infraction. If they chew gum, they drop it on the floor. That's 10 euros. If they... Uh, so there's never a way out of the right, debt. Exactly. He said, he said, you know, in theory, the debt should be able to be worked off. But in reality, the debt never ends. And he said, anyway, after a few years, you know, the girls are, are changed. You know, they can't, um, either they go home without a penny to their name or they're walking around crazy homeless on the street. And I was like, I couldn't hold back my tears anymore because what he was describing was so brutal and horrific. He's like, oh, Senora, why are you crying? You know, if I had known, I was like, don't care about me. Because this, this is so incredibly nothing cold. to do with me. This has to do with all these women whose lives you've destroyed. And... Six months later, I get a letter from the, the head of the brigade who introduced me to him. He said, I don't know what you said to Manolo, but he changed after his meeting with you. Before, he was only giving us tiny tidbits of information, but now he's helping us bring down five, five kingpins of different mafia like rings. And I was like, I had no idea that just my sadness, at my heart being moved, at what he was describing that was befalling these, these victims of his. Would have that type would of have influence. That and the thing is, you never know, like all of you out there, like you never know what one small act of just being human and empathic. I mean, I've spent many years working on this and you know, some things you can measure your success, you can measure the impact, some things you can't. You pass a law, you're like, yay. You know, you raise money for somebody, yay. But, but also just being human and following that call of your heart to answer that cry of this is so wrong and I want to do something to change it and you really engage with your whole heart. I mean, as, as you were saying, Bob, about loving your neighbor, it is the hardest, but it's also the simplest if you listen to your heart, right? And um, I, just, I just encourage you to start, like we, we did an event in New York um, about Mother Teresa recently at the UN and she talked about starting with the person closest to you starting charity at home, starting with one person, do one thing, do one thing today. You know, I may not be able to do what you can do, you may not be able to do what I can do, but together we can do great things. And uh, you know, it's that's- It's about a sense of community and caring yeah. for the community yeah. and starting with just your neighbor. Thank you to our sponsor, Fliplock, for making this episode possible. Fliplock is a door lock unlike any other lock that was created as a nationwide, straightforward solution to protect your people, whether that be in universities, dorms, daycares, hospitals, or even government buildings. It can be added to nearly any door to keep you and yours safe. We are proud to have such a strong and like-minded sponsor of the Balanced Voice podcast. Check out Fliplock at fliplock.com. That's F-L-I-P. L-O-K.com. You know, with your global view and having been so many places and served in so many roles, and especially your work with the UN, I'm interested to know, as I'm sure others are as well, how does the U.S. compare 
to these other nations that you have visited? Sometimes I think we might think we're better than that, right? Yeah, How does not. the U.S. compare? We're not better. We're a huge consumer of online child sexual abuse material. We're like the largest in the world. Like the, the number of videos that are out there every day online of children being raped and abused is staggering. Um, but, and our own, our own domestic minor sex trafficking population is our own children in general. They are mostly U.S. citizens. Absolutely, we have a problem with undocumented minor children coming in and getting lost. But also, we are cannibalizing our own local kids at every level. And sadly, you know, when we talk about like what people's perception of human trafficking is, a lot of people, you know, they saw Taken, and they think of the white van, they think of a kidnapper. And that, that model happens for sure, but sadly, usually it's somebody that the person knows. Over 50% of cases are family controlled. So sometimes it's the person that the child trusts the most that is exploiting that child's vulnerability and innocence. Sometimes it's generational. Sometimes families, the grandma was trafficked and you know, it's just what is known. Other times it's friends, it's, it's happening online. I mean, when we're talking about child sex trafficking, it's, it's on Instagram. It's, it's kids recruiting other kids. It's kids seeing who is the vulnerable person, how do we target them, how do we groom them over time, how do we entice them to be our friends. You know, they see somebody who might be an outcast or being abused at home because abuse at home is one of the number one vulnerability factors or being in the foster care system. And here's a crazy fact. Most foster care intake systems have no category for looking for human trafficking, either in the home that the child is in currently or the foster care home that they move to. It's not even a box to be checked on the form that they're looking for. And that really has to change. That's huge. Like, we don't have training nationwide. This is something we really could do so much better on, is have training in all public-facing businesses, uh, you know, whether you're talking about uh, first responders, the medical community, uh, education, transportation, um, But teachers. I think it's even as basic as your neighbor knowing, right? Like, what do we need to be watching out as the person who lives across the street from someone perhaps who's fostering children or otherwise, right? Like, what are the sure, signals? Out sure, there but, but if, if there are trainings that, that can be given and they're not, like, we could be teaching everyone how to look for the signs of trafficking in every workplace, but we're not. We just have some posters, which is better than having nothing, in ladies' rooms that say, if you're a victim of trafficking, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is great, and you can text to them, be free. But uh, the everyday person, and in their everyday moment of possibly being that watchdog that catches that moment, like if, you know, uh, there was a case where a young a family lived next to another family, and in the middle of the night, they saw a young girl like mopping the floors. And then they started noticing that that girl didn't go to school, although there were other kids in the family that did. And they finally reported that, and it turned out she had been trafficked in from the Middle East as a domestic servant. And this child was working as a housekeeper in the middle of the night as slave labor. Um, and nannies, this happens, you know, this, this is so often. But, you know, I, I would defer to our overcomers to really find out what the signs would be of, like, a child who is trafficked. But 
you know, people in school should be trained, teachers, social workers, they should be trained to know why a person isn't answering certain questions, why they are looking down, why are they are feeling, you know, disassociative and depressed, and, you know, they're, there's, if they have changes in clothing, if they've got bruises on their faces, you know, or in their arms, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of different signs, but our country could do, and our states, statewide, this could be state legislation, could institute training everywhere, and schools is, is huge, like, all teachers, all administrators, all need to recognize these signs. Um, another thing that we could be doing better that uh, I believe eight or nine countries around the world currently have is something called the Nordic model or the equality model, which is a form of partial decriminalization where the person whose body is being exploited is fully decriminalized. So the prostituted person or the trafficked person is never criminalized. But the John is, and the pimp is. The buyer is, and the trafficker is. And when there is no trafficker, still the John is. See, right now there's no teeth for the Johns. There's no teeth for the buyers. Mm -hmm. And people have thought of this traditionally in error as a victimless crime, as a harmless bit of fun, as like a sort of culturally allowed indulgence, just like going to the bar and having a drink. Well, I could... I could buy some commercial sex. But in reality, all trafficked sex's terminus point is prostitution. So when you create demand by buying sex, you are encouraging traffickers to fill those spaces with enslaved human beings. And a trafficked person will almost never show you that they are unhappy or that they are there by force or that you were basically raping them because if they do, they're going to get punched or beaten or worse because the unsatisfied Or they've been customer, subdued by drugs or yes, alcohol Yes, but the, they, well. their, their job is to smile and not show you because they're going to get in trouble and this is kind of where it is now. This is the life. They're in the life and they, they, they're not going to let you know, yeah, this wasn't... This the, the problem is like trafficking is people who are sexually exploited, you, you know, even people who believe that they had a choice in choosing this life, it's usually the best of a bunch of bad choices. They, they have no great choices. So we need to build that safety net that people who are vulnerable in our communities have other choices, have support, have help, have education, have counseling, have, you know, we, we need to sort of change the way we look at our most vulnerable people so that we are preventing trafficking rather than just you know, performing triage after people have been abused for years and years and years. We can do better in the United States. Yes. We can do better at the state level. We can do better in the city of yeah. Houston. Yeah, but you can adopt, the, the equality model can be adopted here. Maine adopt, uh, just adopted it. It can be adopted at the state level, and it has been shown statistically in all the countries where it's been put into place to reduce human trafficking. It's making a difference. Absolutely reduces it because people don't want to buy sex as much. 
and pimps are more afraid of catching serious charges if they, if, if, if they get caught. And the trafficked person is finally decriminalized. And that's another thing we need to think about. I mean, a lot of you here are in law enforcement. And I think you all understand that trafficked people are also in other forced criminality when they're under the abusive sway of their traffickers, whether they're labor trafficked or sex trafficked. So a lot of them have been forced to commit other crimes. And we see a lot of trafficking victims come out of their situations and then have a difficult time picking up their life because they can't escape their criminal record. So we have to have expungement um, and we have to have what is called affirmative defense so that a person can can as a legitimate defense in the court system say, I was under penalty of losing my life if I did not perform this crime for my trafficker. I was like, I literally, you know, literally or, you know, long-term figuratively, I had a gun to my head and this is a legal defense and some states have it and some don't. If you don't have it, at it because we're, we're, we're re-punishing and re-victimizing our survivors who are doing so much to rebuild their lives when we won't allow them to escape these charges that follow them everywhere, whether they're applying for an apartment rental, uh, uh, you know, entering a Absolutely. school, applying for a job. Like I, I met this wonderful young woman who had put herself through college after, after you know, exiting herself from, from being in teenage sexual exploitation as, as a trafficking victim. And and she was interviewing uh, this very high-level company, and she had three callbacks, and it was her final interview, and then they found a, a record, a prostitution record, and it was over. And only years later was that expunged, and then now she has a great job and a great life. But, but they've already suffered so much. It is Absolutely. our job to help, help us say, like, let's not re-victimize you. Let's help valorize you and lift you up. Doing better here but I want to take us to another part of the world right now. And so many of us are thinking about what's going on in the Holy Land, both with Israel and Palestinians as well. I have to ask you, with this war raging on, what does that mean for human trafficking when there is a war? Is there an uptick? Obviously, we know there's sexual exploitation. In the news, we've been reporting about the atrocities happening toward women being raped. What does war mean in this regard? Well, unfortunately, you know, and and this was part of what we covered when I was at Amnesty, rape is used as a tool of war, right? Rape is used by terrorists and militants and regular militaries as a way of crushing the spirit of who they perceive to be their enemy. And it is the most foul way of, it's not combat, it's just, it's just sexual violence. But it's, it's being you know, touted as a way to punish or to fight the enemy, but it's not. It's just horrible violence, plain and simple. And uh, in every conflict situation, there are always uh, sex slaves taken you know, like especially in, 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 in that region and in Africa and in other countries where there's ethnic cleansing or any war-torn country, women and girls and children will often be the first to be victimized. They'll be taken and they'll be taken as sex slaves, uh, trafficked in a certain strange way for the militants of the and the militants, terrorists, right? right? And we've seen this... Um, 
Uh, you know, we've seen this in, in, in many terrible, uh, you know, the, the Yazidi situation where all the women were kidnapped and forced into sexual servitude, and that is a form of human trafficking too. It's not necessarily monetary, but it's slavery just the same. It's sex slavery, and I, this is such a terrible situation for all the civilian victims right now. Obviously, Hamas is a horrendous terrorist group and are doing disgusting, vile, despicable things. And I, I mourn for all of those families and women and children and old people and men and everyone who has been affected by their terrible violence. I also mourn for the people of Palestine who are now the brunt of the retaliation when they are not actually the ones who are doing these atrocities. The ordinary people of Palestine who are having bombs you know, decimating their areas and their children and their families are dying too. All of this is heartbreaking and it all needs this heart change. Like I think, I don't know when it's going to happen. We have to come to this point where we see every human life as having equal dignity and all of us of sharing the same heart. Absolutely. Does it matter our borders? Like we have to respect each other. We have to love each other. And, and just because one is on one side of a border or the other, whether it's Palestine and Israel or Mexico and America, every human being has the same worth and the same, you know, basic humanity and lovability and hopes and dreams. And we have to reorient ourselves to a world that, that, that does love each other, as, as you said. Loves and know. respects one another, yeah. for sure. Um, that's why raising awareness is so important and films, your runaway hit, Sound of Freedom, is so important. Do you feel like that was a role you were destined to play? Um, okay, so I have to tread lightly because uh, because of the SAG strike, which did not end today, sadly. We thought it was going to be over by today. So I'm not really allowed to talk about the film per se because it struck work, you know, and they're very, you know, as they should be firm about that. But um, I have been working on human trafficking for, you know, since 2004, and I was asked to be a part of it because the powers that be involved with it knew of my work beforehand. And, you know, the funny thing is there used to be three scenes with me in them. Now there's two lines. Like, I literally say two things in the movie. It's the smallest part I've ever had in the biggest <laughs> movie I've ever been in. Um, but, but people still find it valuable, um, still, still find uh, Catherine's character to be, like, a moral you know, heart to the story, you know, someone who really believes that when you are confronted with this call, you know, by your maker or your insides, you know, whatever you ascribe to, that you're being called to help people who are in terrible need don't look away. And, um, you know, I, I was honored to play that role. And I have to say that people have told me in all the NGOs that I work with across the globe and in America, that this summer, all of their donations and all these people around them were all of a sudden like, oh, I didn't know. How can I help? How can I get involved? And so we have to thank Bob for helping move, move this film into the light so that people could empathize with those beautiful children in the story, because those beautiful children represent all the victims worldwide. And even if that model of trafficking isn't necessarily the model that we see here or, you know, in different places, it's different where it's labor trafficking or it's sex, the innocence and the soul-crushingness of someone taking your freedom from you and imposing a life on you that wasn't what you hoped for or were intended Dreamed for. Or yeah, that and and that heart 
moving artistry of the story, I think, has awakened a movement. And to see all of you here in this room, I believe you're part of that movement. And that only together will we be able to end slavery a second time. I mean, only together. And, and this is the thing, and this is the crazy thing about what happened with said film and said film's publicity. It started taking on a very political bent. And to my mind, as a person who's advocated on this subject for many years, that is super unfortunate because if I'm gonna say this is only the purview of the right or the left, I'm cutting out half the populace who could be foot soldiers in the fight against human trafficking. Why would I do that? This is not a political issue, this is a human issue. Right? These are human beings, lovable human beings who are having everything taken from them and that we all need to fight to, to give them their lives back, every single one of them. And you know, there's this wonderful anti-trafficking activist named Ruchira Gupta who works in India. And she's got an organization called Apne App. And she has this concept of the last girl, that the fight is not over until we reach the last girl in the darkest room of the dingiest hidden away brothel. Until we've liberated her, we haven't finished our work. So I want to implore you, this is, let's not, let's not say only one side of the aisle can work on this. Because in the past, this was never, this was always a bipartisan issue. Let's keep it that way. Let's say everybody has a heart for children. Nobody believes slavery is right. Like as Abraham Lincoln said, you know, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. And we can all agree with that. You know, finally some unity on something. We can all agree on that. So let's work together across the aisle to do this work. Mira Sorvino, we can't thank you enough for your time tonight, for your knowledge, for your story. We so appreciate you. Everyone, Mira Sorvino. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancevoicepodcast and on Twitter at balancevoice underscore. Stay up to date on Renya's work by following her at the Renya Report. And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.